0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, thank you. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, is page number 836. I got a new toy here, so I'm going to have to learn how to use it this week. Oh, hey, there's a laser pointer. Wake up. <laughs> Ushers, remove them i use that one later. All right. First time using it. We'll see how it goes. We're in Mark chapter 1. We're continuing to look here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry here in verses 14 to 20. This is our section we're going to read. So if you will, look at verse 14 and we will begin. Mark writes this. There we go. That's how this clicks. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are continuing to walk this path with you here at the very beginnings, trying to understand what it means to be a disciple. And as we have seen over the past couple of weeks Being a disciple of yours involves a life of continual repentance and belief. And we have been convicted by that, and we have seen how far short we fall of that. And there's nothing we can do on our own to fix it. And so we have come pleading with you for two weeks now to work in us and begin a work in us, helping us understand what it really means to follow you. And now, here in these next verses that we're working into today we see some examples of what it's going to mean to follow you here with these men that we call the disciples. And so, Lord, while we recognize who they are and that they're not Jesus, they're not God, they're not divine, we recognize also that they act as a wonderful example for us of what discipleship is. And so, Lord, as we begin today, and and this is a process we recognize will continue throughout Mark, as we begin today looking at them and their lives and thinking about what it means to follow you, Lord. Will you help us to to really understand this well and and to examine our own lives and our own thinking and our own understanding in light of of what we see so that we can say with with a a real heart, a a real life, that we are indeed disciples of yours. That's what we want to be. And so, Lord, bless us as we work through this today. Help us to understand it. Help my feeble words to to have weight, not because they're mine, but because they reflect yours. And so, Lord, we give it all to you and ask your blessing on this. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight is a a big night for me, and that's because tonight is our fifth annual Cornerstone Fantasy Football Draft, okay? First season was back in 2009, and uh, this is our fifth season beginning today. And the reason I'm so excited about this is because, as most of you know, I am generally if not always, a rather boring person. I have no hobbies. I have nothing that I'm particularly interested in or that interests other people as well except for this one thing. This is my one hobby that I have all year long, and it lasts from about August into December. Um, And I really genuinely enjoy it. I enjoy the strategy of trying to think through the sports aspect of it, who's going to play, who this week, what's going to be the best matchup, who's the best at this position. I enjoy the camaraderie it creates already. We've had a lot of fun uh, in our league going back and forth over things and talking about it, and I love all the trash talk and sarcasm because that's just my kind of humor. I think it's a lot of fun. And this year, We're going to try something new that we've never done before in the previous four seasons of fantasy football where we've had so many people at Cornerstone over the years who have wanted to be a part of this that this year we're actually running two completely separate leagues but all under the the Cornerstone umbrella. And as I suspected, some of the rookies who are coming into our league who are not seasoned professionals like the rest of us have seen my team name and have laughed at and even ridiculed my team's name in front of other people without knowing anything about my team or the history behind its name. You see, my team name is the Fluffy Kitten of Doom. And now some of you are laughing. But that's okay, I can, I can take the laughs. You see, I think that the best response is humility on my part. I, I don't want to draw attention to my accomplishments. I want to I be as Jesus was, someone who can just simply turn the other cheek and not the need to defend myself or respond in any way. And that's what I've done in the past. That's what I'm doing today. And that is what I will do for the future as well. Now back to, uh, oh, whoops, back to my team's name, the Fluffy Kitten of Doom. That The reason they're laughing at me is because they don't understand the larger story behind that name. That name didn't just pop out of nowhere. It actually has kind of a an odd story. And it really takes us back four years ago to August of 2009. We had just started our very first season of fantasy football. And uh, Frank had set up the league and he was the league manager. And so as you get into the league, it automatically gives your team a name. It's team and then whatever your last name is. There was team Potts and team Hensler and team Jones and team Coba and so on and so forth. And a number of us had not gone in and changed our team name. And those are boring team names, right? You want to have an exciting team name for your league. And so uh, Frank thought it would be funny, and it was, to go in if we didn't update our own names and give us new names that he thought would embarrass us. And so he sends an email this one day, and he says, hey, for all of you who didn't name your team, I named your teams for you. Go in and check it out. And so I go into my account, and I look, and my team is at that moment called the Fluffy Kittens. That was its original name given to me by him. And I thought it was actually kind of funny. I thought it was a little ironic that you would name a fantasy football team the Fluffy Kittens. But at the same time, I thought, well, it is football. It needs to have a bit of a, an ominous feel to it, something a little more manly. So I made one minor adjustment and changed it from the Fluffy Kittens to the Fluffy Kitten of Doom. And everybody laughed at me until I went on to week 12-2 and two in the regular season and sweep the playoffs for the championship, that is... And nobody laughed at me anymore after that. Well, for the same reason as there being a larger story behind my name, there's a larger story here in Mark as well that has to do with Jesus' disciples and the way that we understand them. Now, before I make any comments about the disciples themselves, can I, can I just make a couple of observations really quickly about the disciples and our understanding of them? And I feel like you're going to get tired of this here soon because I feel like every new thing we encounter here in Mark, I have to stop and say, well, wait, you've always thought of it this way. You've always understood it this way. Can we like think about this again? Can we maybe see if our understanding is good, and then we can go in and look at it? I'm doing that again today in relation to the disciples. I hope you'll forgive me, but I think we, we need to do this, because it seems to me that when we talk about or think about this group of men that we call the disciples. We are very imprecise and inconsistent in much of what we say and believe. Okay, So, for example, on the one hand, we tend to think of these men, these 12 men, or 11 men, as being one of the most spiritual group of men that this world has ever seen. And so today we're moving here into verses 16 to 20 into what many of us would see as the story of Jesus calling his disciples to follow him, to to be his own. And when we think of this section in that way, it's really quite amazing. I mean, here's Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, and he's walking alongside the, the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and as he's walking, he comes across these two sets of brothers who are all fishermen, and they're out working on their, on their nets and their boats and doing all this stuff. And he sees them there, and he just says to them, Hey, follow me. And they look up from their nets, and they look at him, and they're like, Okay. And immediately, they just leave everything. They leave their occupations. They leave their families. They leave everything behind to just follow Jesus totally out of the blue. It's amazing. I mean, talk about faith. Talk about great spiritual insight, right? two qualities the disciples will be known for throughout their time with Jesus, right? No. So then we look at this, and we're a little confused. Well, why would they just follow this guy if they didn't understand who he is? And wow, I, I'm, I'm confused by it, okay? So on the one hand, you've, you've kind of got that misconception, which leads again now to our second misconception of them, because we know these guys from later stories, we recognize that these guys don't always have the spiritual insight that we think they should have, that we would be way better if we were in their position, right? We, would, we wouldn't make a lot of the dumb mistakes they make. We see them sometimes as just a group of bumbling buffoons who act as nothing more than a supporting cast to this story that surrounds who Jesus is. They're just kind of like add-ons. I mean, the story is clearly about Jesus. We get that. When we look at them, we see them as, as just this group. They're not that smart. They're always messing up. If we were there, we would do way better. And instead, we just see them as kind of this stupid group of guys, at least in the Gospels. And yet, these are the guys who are going to go on to write the New Testament, to be trailblazers in the church, to to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere. Stupid people can't do that, but they sure seem stupid to us sometimes. So again, we're we're confused and they're confusing, right? Maybe not. Maybe they're not as confusing as we think they are. Maybe, maybe we're just confused about who these guys really are and about how all this stuff works. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to look at three things about these men that we call the disciples, which is kind of an imprecise term that I'm not really going to address today. But we're, I think you know what I'm talking about—the twelve guys. We're going to talk about three things regarding the disciples that we really don't understand very well or see very clearly much of the time. And I think these three things will help open our eyes to this larger story that is behind this group of men and. What Jesus is doing with them and why they're so important to the gospel account. And my hope is, my goal by the end of this message, just to give you that glimpse. I can't peel back every layer of the onion, but I just want to give you a glimpse. Help your mind to just kind of open up a little bit so that in the future as we're working through Mark and you see things you don't understand or you run into something that you're not familiar with, You realize, wait a minute. There's more going on here than probably I'm aware of. Let's let's try to dig in a little deeper, and we will do that. So, show you three things we don't typically see when we look at the disciples. Number one, when we look at the disciples, we don't typically see the connections, relationships, and timing that are a part of this larger story. We don't see the connections, relationship, and timing that are a part of this larger story. I don't know about you, but as I mentioned just a moment ago in the introduction, I I am really amazed when I read verses 16 to 20. And the reason why I'm so amazed by these verses is because the way Mark presents it, Jesus just happens to be walking around and he comes up on these fishermen working on their nets and he decides right then and there to call them to be his disciples and he issues the call and immediately they all respond. And, And When I'm reading that, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, just look at how Mark puts it here. He says that after John was arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee. He's preaching the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what we looked at last week. And he tells everyone, repent and believe the gospel. And as he's doing all of this, he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, which if you're not familiar with that, I showed you this map last week, it's the body of water up here in the north there around this area called Galilee. This is where he's walking around, and he sees these two brothers, Simon and Andrew, who are standing on the shoreline, apparently casting a net into the sea. They're they're trying to catch some fish, because that's, guess what, what fishermen do. And so Jesus says to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And boom, immediately, they leave their nets and follow him. No, no questions asked, but he's not done. He goes a little bit further and he sees two more brothers, James and John, sons of some guy named Zebedee, and they're in their boats mending the nets. And as soon as he sees them, immediately he calls them too. And just like before, they jump up, leave their father with the hired servants, and they go follow Jesus, okay? Is it just me or is that weird? I mean, if you were there... And you're at work and, you know, whatever you do for a living, if you're at work and some random guy walks past your office, past your station, he's walking past where you are at in the ship, and he says, hey, follow me. And you're like, okay, great idea. I'll leave everything behind and go after you. None of us would do this. And if you think of the story in that way, you have to believe either, A, that these men are incredibly perceptive, that they see Jesus walking, and they're like, there's something about this guy. I don't know what it is, but there's something about him. I'm going to follow him and hope it works out good. Like you either think they're incredibly perceptive or they're incredibly stupid. Oh, well, go on. I got nothing else going on today. Let's go follow Jesus and see what happens. Is it A? Is it B? Well, actually, I I'm pretty sure it's C. You see, there is a larger story here than what we have seen in Mark chapter 1. Remember that the gospel writers are not attempting to give us a full account of everything that happened in Jesus' life. Every single one of our gospel writers have chosen specifically for their own reasons stories and details, incidents and happenings to include in their accounts that will help them accomplish what it is they're trying to accomplish. And so as we read through the gospels, we're not reading four exact accounts of the same thing. We're reading four unique accounts of the same thing. And each of them are going to start in different places. Each of them are going to do different things. And you just need to remember that as you're putting this together. Mark has chosen to start in a specific spot for his own specific reason. He's beginning the story where he wants to. And it's here with Jesus calling these men in these ways. But there's more here than what Mark is showing us. And I want to show you two examples of why I know that's the case, okay? Okay. Now, let me clarify what these two examples are. The first example I'm going to show you is definite. No questions asked. It is guaranteed 100% going to prove that there is more to the story than than what Mark includes. The second one is just possible, okay? So you understand the difference, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. First one definite, second one possible. Let's look at the definite example first. Hold your place here and turn to John chapter 1. I want you to turn there, even though I'm going to put it on the screen, because I want you to be able to kind of look at it and go back and forth. In John chapter 1, we are going to read an earlier account of Jesus meeting these guys, okay? It's going to happen before what we're reading here in Mark 1, and you'll understand how I know that, if, uh, I think, in just a moment. But let's read it together. We're going to start in verse 29, just to set the context. I want to make sure we understand what's going on. This is John the Baptist we're going to be reading about. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, stop right there. And let's think about this for a moment. How do we know that this story here in John chapter 1 happens before the story in Mark chapter 1? Does anyone know the, the big clue? Did you catch it? What is it? Not quite, but it was a good guess. You you normally give me right answers. That's why I called on you. Does anyone know? Did you catch the big clue? What is it? John the Baptist is there. Did you you notice that? This is happening right around the time of the baptism. Jesus has apparently come. John has seen all the things that happen around the baptism. The next day he comes back again and, and John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And John's got disciples of his own, men who have, who have gathered around him to learn about this coming kingdom and the repentance that's needed. And as soon as he says this about Jesus, two of them take off. They begin to follow him. And we probably should define what the word follow here means, but we won't for time's sake today. But it means they're going to start to listen to this guy. And one of those guys is Andrew, the very guy we're reading about here in Mark chapter 1. Well, in Mark 1, what's going on? What's the timing? John's in prison. When Mark begins the story, it's sometime after the John 1 event. I don't know how long, if we're talking months, if we're talking a year. It's sometime after. And so when Jesus is walking along the shoreline and he sees these guys in the boat and he says, hey, follow me, they already know each other. There is a history that has already been established between them that we know of for sure. And so, therefore, while it's still a major commitment on their part to follow Jesus in this particular way, they're not being crazy and they're not all that perceptive. They know who they're following. Do you understand what I'm trying to communicate here? Okay, do you get it? Nod your head yes or no. Okay, hopefully, all yeses. Certainly, Jesus knows them. There's more to the story than what you see here in Mark chapter 1. In fact, if you kept reading in John 1, if you're still there, you can just look down a few more verses, you see that he also knows Philip and Nathaniel there as well. So there's more of these guys that will later become his disciples that he will interact with in some way or another for some time prior to that call. And so as we read about all these accounts of what's happening as Jesus is calling these men to himself, understand that there are relationships, connections, and timing that are part of this larger story that we don't typically think about. Second, let me show you a possible example of some of these connections, this larger story that is going on here, okay? And this is possible, and I'll explain why it's possible, but it has to do with the women who are around the cross at Jesus' Uh, Crucifixion, okay? Um, You have four, whoa, this went way farther than I intended. There we go. You have four different places that you could look for this list of women. I've put the four up here Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Big surprise. Luke is the only one who won't include it. I'll get to that in a moment. As you look at these lists, Each of the three writers who talk about the women around the cross lists three people. If we looked at Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56, you would see the following three women listed. Number one, Mary Magdalene is there. Number two, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph are there. And number three, the mother of the sons of... What is this thing doing? We'll just leave it up. Sons of Zebedee is there. You've got these three women who are around the cross. When you turn over to Mark... Nope, not that I know of. When you turn over to Mark, you see a different set of three women. You see Mary Magdalene, Mary, the wife of James and excuse me, the mother of James and Joseph, and a woman named Salome. Luke doesn't tell you anything about them. Thank you. When you get to John, thank you. You can just leave it there, Jordan. When you get to, this is how the way to do a sermon right here. When you get to John. He lists three women as well. Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary's sister, Mary the mother of Jesus, Jesus' aunt is at the scene. Well, if you compare all of these lists, Mary Magdalene is on all three, so we can cross her name off. Mary the mother of James and Joseph is apparently the same woman who's Mary the wife of Clopas. Cross her off. And then you're left with whatever Jordan gives me here. Three people who we don't know anything about. One is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Two is a woman named Salome. Three is Mary's sister. And so the theory is, and it's pretty common. There we go. Can you leave it there? Perfect. The the, the theory goes like this. It could be that Salome is the wife of Zebedee, which makes her the mother of James and John, which makes her Jesus' aunt, and makes Jesus the cousins of James and John. Did you follow all of that? You almost have to like build out a a family tree here, but if this is correct and it seems to be correct, we just can't prove it for a fact, that means that James and John are Jesus's cousins. And so when he walks up to them on the boat and he says, hey, follow me, he sees Uncle Zebedee there and he sees his cousins, guys he's probably grown up with, and they say, sure, we'll follow you. It's not that crazy of a of the situation. In fact, the reason that to me this makes so much sense is because it explains a number of things about James and John and things we're going to read about in the gospels. One, it explains part of why they're in the inner circle, their their family. He knows these guys. He's connected to them. Two, it explains to me why his mother, excuse me, their mother feels that she has the right to come to Jesus and say, hey look, when you get into your kingdom, will you put my boys on either side, left and right? I mean, who asks that? family <laughs> they ask that kind of stuff all the time it makes a lot of sense that she's his aunt third it makes sense for me that john is the specific disciple that jesus loves that's that's the title that john gets he's the disciple that jesus loved maybe they were very close growing up i don't know Four, it explains to me why jesus on the cross gives mary the care of his mother into john's hands he's family you don't give your mother to some stranger. You give it to a family member. I, I think that makes sense. Now, I can't prove to you for a fact that that's true. It's a it's a theory. It sure makes a lot of sense across a number of different perspectives, but there's nothing that says Salome is mother of, of James and, and John and is his aunt. There, there's nothing that says that. And so these are simply connections and relationships and timing issues that we need to be aware of that are a part of this story. And so as we read things about these guys, remember all of that stuff. There's a lot more there than what's going on. Number two, let me show you the second thing. Number two, we, we don't typically, when we look at the disciples, see these guys as being ordinary men. We don't always see them as being the smartest guys, but we don't, we don't typically see them as being ordinary men because even though they come across as very unimpressive in certain situations, We are very, very familiar with how this story ends. These guys who up front aren't going to know a lot are the guys that Jesus chose. These are the guys that he will then send out as his representatives. These are the guys to whom he will give authority. These are the guys who will write the New Testament. The church itself, this thing that Jesus has come to redeem and to build, the church is going to be built on the foundation of these men. These guys are, in that sense, kind of special. And in those senses, they deserve our respect, They deserve our gratitude. But but please, 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 as we read about these guys, do not lose sight of the fact that these are just ordinary guys. There's nothing special about these men. They were generally uneducated, lower class nobodies for all we know. They do make lots of mistakes. They're going to fail a lot, and we're going to see those failures. They came from all different kinds of backgrounds you, you can't pigeonhole them I mean like politically you've got on one hand Simon the Zealot why is he called the zealot well it's because he's part of a political movement that wants to overthrow Rome he he would be happy to pick up arms and go fight on the other hand you've got Levi or Matthew he works for the romans He's a tax collector of all. These two guys couldn't be more diametrically opposed politically than anyone else you can think of. Think about them, uh, their occupations. Four, at least four, maybe seven of them are fishermen. All of them, except for Levi, seem to be some kind of tradesmen, um, for what we know, the ones we know anything about. So they're all across the board, but nothing particularly special. Think about their ages. Um, There's young to old. On one hand, you've got someone like Peter, who is old enough to be married and be working and have a home. On the other side, a lot of people think that Thaddeus, right, he's everybody's favorite disciple, Thaddeus, the one we hear so much about, he could be the youngest of the group. Thaddeus is probably a nickname. He also goes by the name Judas, not Iscariot. Okay, that's very specific when you read the New Testament. He's Judas, not Iscariot. He goes by Thaddeus. He goes by Lebius. The name Thaddeus literally means breast child, Probably because he's so young, they're making fun of him as if he should still be nursing. Did you know that? So you've got different age ranges uh, in the group. Culturally, most of these guys are from Galilee. They're just the average folk of their day. In other words, there's nothing special about them. That's why MacArthur, when he wrote his book on it, he called it 12 Ordinary Men. Because they are completely ordinary men from all types of backgrounds, and yet... Jesus is going to take these ordinary men and use them to change the world in ways that no one could have imagined at that time. Number three, when we think about these guys, we don't typically see them as central to the ministry of Jesus. We, when we look at them, we, or excuse me, when we look at Jesus, we typically divide Jesus's life into two main sections, okay? You've got 30 years of, of something, okay? He's growing up and he's doing things. We don't know what he's doing because there's nothing written about it or hardly anything written about it. And then you've got the second section, which is three years of public ministry. And when you think about this divide, 30 years of something, three years of public ministry, most people look at this and ask the question, why did he only have public ministry for three years? Like, why didn't he start at 20? 20? You could have 13 years of public ministry then, right? Or maybe if he didn't die at 33, what if he'd, like, you know, not die till he was 100? He could have had 70 years of. Why only three years of public ministry? Well, when I look at this, I ask a little bit different question, and it's this Why spend any time in public ministry at all? Could, could Jesus have died at the age of 25, let's say, before entering public ministry, sacrificed himself for our sins, and earned our salvation. Yeah. He was sinless. His blood could definitely atone for our sins. We were just as sinful. He was just as holy, just as divine. His blood had just as much power. He didn't have to go through three years of being insulted and and attacked and to, to die on a cross. He could have found a different way. Why did he have to have that time at all? You say, well, he had to have that time because his purpose was to go proclaim the gospel to the world. He wants to to reach the masses. He wants to call men to himself to repent and believe. Okay, okay, I get that. And he did do those things to some extent. But can I point out that if his goal is to reach the masses and, and proclaim the gospel to all these people, that he did a really bad job? I mean, he's only doing it for three years, and he barely ever leaves Galilee. He's going to spend the majority of his time in a very, very, very small area, and he's probably only going to talk to a a few thousand people at most. In fact, I'm, I'm really confused about him if that's his job, because when he ends up attracting lots of people, and it seems like he's doing a good thing, right, in our eyes, that's the moment when he tries to push people away. So one day he's feeding 5,000 people. He's taught them all day long, and they're they're hungry, and he does this amazing miracle. And the next day they all come back. And if he was any normal preacher, that preacher would have been like, yes, I am finally hitting the spot I need to be in. I am finally having the, the impact that I wanted to have. This is awesome, and everyone around him would have thought this is awesome. So what sermon does Jesus preach that day? He preaches his famous eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon. And people are so offended and repulsed by this that they leave in mass. And John even points out that even some of his disciples leave him and follow him no more. That doesn't sound like someone who's trying to win the masses to me. And so if his purpose then isn't necessarily in these three years of limited ministry in Galilee to reach the masses with the truth of the gospel, then what is his purpose in that time period? Well, I would like to argue that I think part of his purpose, at least, if not the majority of it, is to spend time with those men. To teach these men that they're not just add on characters to, to the main character of Jesus, that they're Jesus' focus. He wants to live his life with these men. He wants to teach these men both formally and informally. He wants to give them the opportunity to watch him and learn from him in all kinds of situations. He's going to send them out on ministry trips to go do things, give them instructions of how to do it. Then he's going to bring them back in and teach them more about what they did right and what they did wrong. And he's doing all of this, I think, with the future in mind. Because it is his plan that this group of ordinary, unamazing men will be empowered by his spirit to do amazing things. And so as I begin to think about the larger story behind who these guys are, and we really haven't even worked through the text, I'm just trying to help you think bigger about the disciples. It's just concept in general. As we begin to think about the larger story behind who these guys are, I begin to realize that maybe my understanding our understanding isn 't quite what it should be how How does that help us? I and mean, what does that do for us even just to begin to get a glimpse into this? Well, I think it affects three things number one, it shows me that that Jesus isn 't looking for extraordinary people to follow him he 's perfectly happy to take ordinary people and and, and I say this one and i 'm passionate about this one because the thing I think I hate the most about being a pastor is the way pastors are treated. Like, you know, your neighbors treat you weird. People you meet treat you weird. All of you treat me weird. Maybe it's just because I'm weird. I don't know, all right? Maybe it's my fault. I'm just kidding on some of that. But um, as soon as you tell someone, oh, you're a pastor, I'm a pastor, they're like, oh, you know. Let me let me be holy now. I've had people like apologize to me about things they said in a conversation, like mid sentence, like "Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry." As if I'm God Himself and will damn their soul to hell for what they just said. Um, I, they they treat you as if you are some super person in God's eyes. I hate that because I'm not a super person in any sense. And so other people then who are on the other side of it, they're like, well, I'm just an ordinary guy. I can't do what he does. Don't you see? Jesus likes ordinary people. He takes ordinary people who make lots of mistakes and get lots of things wrong, and he empowers them by his spirit to go out and and win the nations. He's not looking necessarily to raise up a a whole group of pastors and missionaries and all these professionals to go do this. He he entrusted it to all of us. We are all disciples of Jesus if we believe on him and in his name. And he is looking at us to use us by his spirit to go do the amazing. That's one thing I learned. Another thing I learned here is that discipleship isn't a program program. When you look at how Jesus' disciples, he doesn't come up to these guys and say, please sign up for a 12-week class that I'll be offering next Thursday at 9 o'clock. He says, follow me. Just come along. Live life. Walk down the road with me. See what happens when I interact with these guys who don't like me very much. Watch what happens when we walk into this wedding and things don't go as planned. Watch what happens when we're out in the middle of nowhere and and, and a storm comes up. We're on the sea and a storm comes up and and everything's falling apart. Just come along. We we are so entrenched because of the way we've been raised in in American churches to think that discipleship is something you do. It's something you sign up for. It's something you attend. It's something that when you get done, you have a nice little diploma to put on your wall. And now you're a disciple. That's not discipleship. Real discipleship. Biblical discipleship is going to take us following someone, and that someone is Jesus. And so he puts us together in a church so that we as a group of people can follow Jesus together, so that we can encourage one another and push one another to be better and better disciples of Jesus, again, by God's empowering spirit. That's what discipleship is. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, well, I've, I'm have i not really following anybody, then... You're not on the path of discipleship. I'm all alone. No one's one's saying anything into my life, speaking into my life. I'm I'm not trying to follow Jesus in any way. You're not a disciple. I'm telling you, just not. Discipleship isn't about a program. It's about being a part of the body of Christ and what he is doing here as we follow him together. The third thing I learned is that it is God's plan. It is his desire, and it is the thing that brings him glory to use spirit-empowered men and women to change the world. If Jesus had wanted to, he could have lived an eternal life on earth, never die. We could still go meet him today. He could be sitting somewhere in Galilee and we could all make a pilgrimage there and and go sit at his feet. He didn't have to die at 33. He didn't have to die at all. He chose to die. And he chose then to entrust his mission, God's eternal plan to this, (laughs) to this, to us. And we're going to give an account for that. That's why, you know, a few months ago as we were talking about the future of Cornerstone, we said that one option on the table, or excuse me, one option that was not on the table was status quo. You remember that if you were here? Maintaining the status quo is not an option as the disciples of Jesus because he has purposefully left us here as his body to be going and making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are you on board with that? Are you allowing the spirit to work in you and through you at your job, in your neighborhood, with your family, in whatever context God has placed you? Because this is kind of what church is, all right? Nothing special. It's nothing fancy. It doesn't take a lot of program. It doesn't take anything snazzy or, 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 or cool. It just takes people who are willing to follow him, who have seen what he's done for us on the cross and are willing to respond. And so as we work through what it means to be a disciple, as we talk about this group of guys that we call the disciples, I simply wanted you to understand at the very, very outset that there's a larger story here. There's a larger story in terms of what actually happened in their lives, but there's even a larger story than that in how God is working both through them and now through us to fulfill his plans on this earth. Will you bow your heads in prayer just for a moment? Jesus, we, we come confessing this morning our lack of understanding about what you are doing, both in your word and in our lives. We continually struggle to believe that you would take just regular people and that through us, with all of our faults and failures, that you, your spirit, can empower us to use us to change this world to call men and women to believe in you and your sacrifice for us on the cross. We we still want to define following you in terms of things we can check off instead of following you in all of life. And Lord, we know that that is wrong. We see it clearly here. And so Lord, will you help us to have a corrected understanding of discipleship, to have a more complete understanding of what it means to be a disciple, not just for these guys that we're going to read about here in your word, so we want it there as well, but, but in our own hearts and minds. Help us to, to really get our minds wrapped around the fact that when you set us free from sin, you made us yours. We belong to you now and we want to live our lives for you. And so Jesus, please help us to do that. Empower us by your spirit to do that even today. So as we go forth this week, next week, into the future, we will be disciples of yours. We ask these things in your name. Amen.